fall into the theology bit. Welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh and Not Like a Bottomless Pit. And as I've said many, many, many times, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. But here, you can drink full. We are like, we're like a fountain. We are like the ad fonts here, the the battle cry of the reformers for when it comes to uh, justification. So here, think of the the well springing up, that there's just so much there to drink from. And the problem is, is that, you know, if you've ever seen a, a, a spring um, or if you've ever tapped into one, you know that there has to be a certain amount of runoff because there's just too much water for anyone to use, uh, for any one person to consume, I should say. Um, sometimes they run dry, but usually usually they don't. A spring will keep going. I, I lived in a place one time where um, an entire section of the town was tapped into one spring. And, you know, we had runoff. You, you had to have the rest of the water go somewhere because there's just so much that one person can't take it all in. But what you can take in, that is what keeps you alive. That's what keeps you going. And here at the Theology Pit, we want to kind of be like that. We want to be that that fountainhead. Um, a lot of times in theology, and you've noticed this, if you've been listening to this podcast, if you're up here to, you know, this is uh, number 14 in this series on, um, you know, the application of the atonement. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that I leave out, and that's because there's a lot of runoff. We could spend so much time in every aspect of theology and everything that's that, that is happening in all these different time periods and stuff. But by keeping it to this one topic, we can allow that theological runoff to occur, knowing that there's more stuff there, knowing that there's more life-saving, life-sustaining water out there that could keep us going. I mean, we've never quantified or qualified, I'm not sure how you'd exactly say that, of the concept and the existence of God, what God's attributes would be like. We never uh, qualified using the Bible. We've never qualified a lot of these things. We've just kind of taken them for granted, and in particularly in this discussion, though, when it comes to the application of the atonement. But in future pits, we are going to get to that. But today, it's the doctrine of justification. So we've been discussing and leading up the understanding, you know, leading up to the understanding of the application of the atonement. And now we hit the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement. We've looked at how the church has historically been viewing all these things, how it's been putting it together. And um, the great reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin and uh, Erasmus and certain things. And I listen back to the podcast and I know that, you know, I stumble over some things, sometimes some historical facts. Um, I think I said in the last one that I I didn't quite say it, but I alluded to 
maybe that Martin Luther was not a doctor of theology. He, he most certainly was. He got his doctorate. Um, the point that I was making was that he didn't specifically go into ministry. Um, his goal was not to go in to become a doctor of theology, to become a cardinal or anything like that. He was just looking for um, reconciliation with God. Uh, but he did earn his his doctorate. He did teach. Um, you know, I kind of wanted to get into that. He was a uh, you know an ordained priest. Um, but when it comes to the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement, let me define that for us uh, real fast here. The most, um, I guess, concise definition would be this. The atonement is made on the cross when Christ vicariously bore the exact penalty of his people, thereby placating the wrath of God and satisfying his righteousness. All right. I'm going to break that down for you just a little bit more so we can get a fuller understanding of of what exactly we're saying here. When it says, and, and these are some key words, like a lot of times whenever you're doing theology or you get involved in theology, um, words matter and words matter a lot. They, I mean, one word can make a huge difference, give huge implications. Um, you might listen to these and think that I'm kind of nitpicky over the way something is worded. Uh, there's a reason for it because of the implications. This is one discipline. This is one art and science. Um, where what you say and the way you say it and the way that you word it makes a huge difference. You have to be very, very careful of the wording because the people who came before you, they were extremely careful in the way that they worded things. Because I mean, let's think about it from a, a Christian perspective here. What you are doing is you are claiming to be more or less synthesizing and paraphrasing and delivering what God has said. You are speaking for God. You are saying that what I'm about to tell you, God has said, God has spoke. Now that's a big weight to be put on your shoulders, okay? There are warnings against doing things like that. Um, You know... Not taking the Lord's name in vain, the uh, third commandment, is it can be understood and can be translated as don't say that God has said something that he didn't say. Um, when you have a warning like that, you're going to kind of be careful on, you know, what you say, uh, you know, the way that you go about saying things. In the New Testament, in the book of James, uh, chapter 3, verse 1 says, um, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, because you know that we will be judged more strictly. I mean, that's, that's huge there. As a teacher, as somebody that's doing a podcast, you might think, Oh, well, you know, that's great that you're doing a theological podcast. That's cool. I mean, there are a lot of of Christian podcasts out there, a lot of theological podcasts, and uh, I don't listen to all of them. I've listened to some of them. I'm hopefully going about doing this in a a different way and something I'd want to hear. But I would say that the majority of Christian podcasts out there that are doing them in a uh, w- with a didactic approach, with a teaching approach, with a strong theological 
understanding um, that the teachers who are doing this, the people who are doing this podcast, I would venture to guess that they've actually read James chapter three. They've read that first verse. They've studied it. They've meditated on it. They've understood it. And they know that warning. Now, what exactly does it mean that we will, you know, be judged uh, more strictly? Um, I'm not quite sure. All I know is that by me saying, I think this is what God means, is different than me saying, this is what God says. This is what his word is. Um, I'm maybe the way that I'm weaseling around it is that by doing podcasts in this way, by, uh, presenting all the different views and all the different angles, I can weasel my way around it. But if you sit down and talk to me privately and I, I'll probably even, you know, do this whenever I get done with this series and we just get more into more discussive, uh, theology pits, um, more, you know, one, one shot topical ones or something. And I, I'll start talking about my views. I'll start talking about specifically from my point of view, um, and, and why I think it's right. I will be getting into that area of thus saith the Lord. Um, I will be getting into that, that teaching area, which I already am now, but that judging more strictly, I want you to be able to think for yourself and to be able to teach others and to learn you know, uh, about these different views and where our, our faith comes from and um, you know, understanding how we as the, the body of Christ have looked at how Christ's atonement has been applied to us and, and what all that means. Uh, but know that there is this warning that, you know, that, that comes with it um, all, all through Scripture. Um, if you read um, in Deuteronomy... I want to say, I'll have to look it up here real quick. I want to say it's like 1919, um, somewhere around there, where it talks about um, whenever you have somebody who is a, um, a prophet that, that comes and they say, you know, this, that, and the other thing, how, how to test them and those sort of things. I mean... There's a warning that, you know, if you're not saying, if you come as a prophet and you're not saying the right things, um, then you need to reject that person. You need to, you know, totally throw them out. And I'm, I'm trying to look up what I just said here. No, never mind. That, that Deuteronomy address is, is wrong. You see, I'm not the best with addresses. I, if I don't do it beforehand and I try to do it while I'm talking, um, you know, I'm just kind of, uh, um, uh, I'll, I'll give you the wrong address, so, uh, but a right church, wrong pew type thing. You can kind of think of it like that. But anyways, my, my point is, is that God is very particular on what he says in the way that he says it. I, w- I was on, um, 101.5 word FM years ago, and I was discussing the inspiration of scripture and the infallibility of scripture and, and what that meant. And, you know, I, I think it was in the context of translations and, and what we meant by the word of God and, and those sort of things. And I, I brought up the example. I said, you know, when it comes to an infallible statement, can we as human beings make infallible statements? 
And the immediate reaction is, well, no, only God can. Only, only God is infallible. And I said to them, um, do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and that by his death, it allowed us, it made us righteous before God and that he was raised for our justification and that therefore, because of that, we are saved. And they said, well, yeah, I believe that. I said, is that a true statement? They said, yeah, it's a true statement. I said, is it an infallible statement? And they hesitated. And I said, that's a good hesitation because that's what we're talking about. We say something's infallible or that it is God-breathed, theonoustos, that it is inspired. We are saying that we are speaking for God Um, from the pulpit, uh, some denominations, I'd say the majority of them, look at that as you're hearing the word of God. He's the, the, the priest or the pastor is speaking for God, uh, standing in the, in the place. Um, in some denominations, the priest is called the vicar of Christ, um, that they are the representative, so to speak, of, of Christ. They are uh, vicariously, Christ is there through them. You have a lot of emphasis that is put on what we say being what God says. And how can we be sure of that? Now, from the histories that we've just gone through recently, um, we haven't gotten to the point where the popes have been declared to be uh, the infallibility of what they say. And that's what they say from the chair of of St. Peter. It's not that everything that they say is infallible and they're not impeccable. Sometimes people mix up uh, impeccability with infallibility, and that's not fair. Um, And it wasn't until later that the Pope was determined uh, to be in in faith and practice and what he said uh, considered to be infallible. Um. But the, uh, the push, if you remember, uh, from, the, um, from the scholastics and um, from uh, the, the universities, uh, the Paris universities, uh, they were looking at the um, councils as being infallible. A a group of believers are getting together and they are making infallible statements through what the council says. That was also the argument of the humanists and why, you know, they were backing Luther in that sense. And you can see in the different denominations that we have today that there are varying degrees of this. Um, congregationally run churches will say that when the congregation gets together, that the Holy Spirit, he is fully represented because of the spiritual gifts that are imparted. Um, and that when they agree, uh, when the, um, congregation agrees on something and that they prayerfully vote on it, that then that is God speaking. That is God's will. Some say that, well, when the elders get together, the elected body, then as the representation, what they say, that that is God speaking. 
So there's a lot of different ways that people are understanding this is what God says and this is how he says it. And there are definite warnings about it. Now, I can't talk about people's hearts. I can't talk about how they understand that, how they keep that in their heart, whether they hold to it as something that's sort of like an axe hanging over their head, if that's a good illustration, or, you know, uh, what they're doing. But this becomes a very serious thing. Um, Whenever we start to put more emphasis on ourselves, I think that that's when we get into problems. So when it comes to the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement, a lot of the emphasis is on God. As you can see up up through this whole way, this view stands in line and I'm going to say this and it's going to, I mean, it's going to sound bad in a way, but all views say that they start in the, in the Bible and then work their way out. I don't think that that's true. Um, This is one where I believe it's fully grounded in the Bible because of the genesis of the other views, okay? Now, Pelagius, because he wasn't around until later on, you know, 5th century, and uh, it's, it, you know, his views were uh, seeping in, you know, up until today, up until the present day, that that's what, you know, the, the Bible is writing against. A, a lot of times, what the New Testament authors are doing, the writers are doing, is they're, they're clearing things up, but they're also writing against a lot of things. Um, they're writing against the behaviors um, that some groups may have. They're writing against uh, some of the wrong-headed thoughts some of the groups had. I mean, if you read the book of Galatians, it's more, more or less a chastisement um, that Paul is writing uh, to the Galatians. I mean, he's saying, look, you guys got it wrong. Who's bewitched you? Why are you believing this different gospel? Why are you doing that? And, and but, but notice that even though he's saying that, he's still referring to them as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not that they that just because they believe wrong, all of a sudden they are not justified anymore. Absolutely not, because the justification doesn't lay on them. The justification happens in the mind of God. He's declared them just. They're just thinking wrong about it. So... Even if you have wrong-headed thoughts, that doesn't disqualify what you're saying. So when we go back to what the Stoics believed, um, Platonic, Platonic thought, uh, Aristotelian philosophy, and the Gnostic understandings of, you know, everything physical is bad, everything spiritual is good. And you have the the gospel writers. You have the authors of the New Testament writing against all those views. We saw in uh, John's gospel by taking the word logos, which a Stoic word, a, a Stoic understanding. We went over that and uh, in, in what that understanding was. And he takes it and he says, here's what it is. This is Christ. The second person of the Trinity is the Logos, and, and 
and and what that meant, that divine emanation. But it's so much more than that because it wasn't just a, a an emanation from God. This logos is God Himself. That's very philosophical arguments that you're putting in there. It's interesting. The Gospel of John is 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 a gospel that is written in a very Jewish biographical structure, but that is a very which is very you know, Eastern in that sense, but the argumentation using the Stoic, uh, philosophy, the Stoic understanding is very Western, um, style, you know, Greek philosophical, um, understandings. It's, it's kind of uh, mixing the two, the East and the West. Um, it's, it's sort of like the way, uh, when you, the richness of the book of Hebrews, when you, when you read through it and you, you know, you see what's going on, very high Greek, very expressive and very, you know, taking the Old Testament imageries and understandings and, and being able to synthesize them and, and explain them for a very Western uh, thought uh, culture, like those those sort of things, which is why a lot of the humanists and, and the um, scholastics uh, would gravitate towards stuff like that and say, this is the way we, we should do it because look at the structure and look at this format. Now, using a structure and a format to explain something and to understand it is different than saying that this structure is the way that God wants us to understand things and wants us to do things. The message that's coming through is the important thing. Um, maybe perhaps not the vehicle that is delivering the message, the, the type of argumentation, the, t- the type of thought. Um, you know, that gets into the, the type of translation of the Bible that you use. You know, do you use the, the King James, the authorized version, or do you use the, you know, the NIV or the Message Bible or the Net Bible, or do you have to get a Digliot, or do you have to, um, you know, find the best Novum Testamentum and learn Greek and read that? And, you know, doesn't matter. The message is what matters. Okay. The, the, the voice of God, what, what is coming out of the, um, vox is what it's called. The, the voice of God, um, as opposed to the ipsissima verba, which is the actual words themselves. Um, when we get into translations and, and the different kinds of translations, we'll look at things like letterism, where even the shape of the letter had some you know, special meaning and connotation to it uh, that some people would hold to. Um, you see, I mean, that, that more of a, um, a Old Testament um, you know, Hebrew understanding. Uh, but, well, that's, you know, that's, that's a side issue there. So... When I say that, you know, this view, in my opinion, goes back to the Bible, the reason why I'm saying that is because I'm saying that the philosophy that the authors of the New Testament are pushing back against, I'm viewing that negatively, the views that they're pushing against, not that they're doing it. So therefore... Anything, in my opinion, that is falling along that vein, I necessarily push against. I say, no, I, I understand that those arguments exist, that those arguments are there, that those arguments are used, but they're being used in a way to push back against them, that this is a wrong-headed direction to go. Now, the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement is not 
the end all be all is not perfect by any means. Um, and I will, you know, in, in later theology pits, as once we get past this, as I've done with the others, I will talk about the problems that this view has, um, that this, you know, is, is an issue. But I want to say that by us looking at, no, there's nothing that we can do. It's all God. Uh, by, by talking about, you know, uh, Paul in Romans saying that nobody search for, searches for God. No one is righteous. N- n- not one. Uh, nobody does. And then by, you know, him talking about the doctrine of justification and giving the example that you know, to be justified means your God forgives you of your sins and he makes you positionally righteous. He makes that covenant with you. Um, and that that covenant is not a covenant that you make with God, but it's a covenant that God has made with you. And that's very significant because some people think that it's, well, I have my end to do. No, you don't. uh, When a covenant is made with you, the responsibility is not on you. The responsibility is on the one who has made the covenant with you. In the marriage ceremony, um, there's a covenant that is being made uh, between the husband and the wife. I ask the husband first whenever I perform marriages, um, or the husband-to-be, I should say, at that point, um, you know, do you take this woman, the have and the hold, like, by you know, placing a ring on her finger, he says that he does. Now, that ring on her finger is not her covenant to him. It is his covenant to her. He has made this covenant. He has promised his life and, and swore an oath that he would be with her forever until they until he died until death or until she dies until death parts them that's it at that point i then you know pivot and i ask her the same things if the bride were to say no i don't then he is still under that covenantal obligation to her but she is not now, hopefully, a man's wise enough that he picks a woman who will not say no and who will not back out of it at that point. Because, I mean, if you wanted to get into a strictly religious, contextual, contractual understanding here, covenantal understanding, um, if we were in a, a theocracy, a theocratic society, a, a God-governed society where you know, this type of covenant is what would be held up in law um, is this would be legally binding as well as spiritually binding. He would then be legally bound to her, but she would not be legally bound to him because she had not made a covenant with him. When God makes that covenant with you, as he gave in the illustration, the Abrahamic illustration uh, with just him passing between the animals that had been separated and Abraham did not. That was God. It's all God. God is the one who is on the hook. Now God is the one who the, the covenant that he made is the covenant with you and with himself. And he is saying, this is what I will fulfill. This is what I will promise to do. This is what I have obligated myself to do. Now, this is also different than a capitulation. Because as we talked about, the capitulation is the um, the the thing that is in. Uh, how do I say that? You are in a sense surrendering to an unwelcome demand. Okay, pretty much is somebody has come in 
and said, this is how things are going to be and you have to do it that way. That is a capitulation and you have to do it. You have no other choice. Um, and if you don't do it, of course, you know, it's, it's, it's on you. Then there is a, a penalty that's going to occur. That was what Adam was under that type of, uh, of understanding. That was the capitulation. That's why Christ did a recapitulation. He, uh, redid everything that was put on him, but, uh, Christ fulfilled that. So he, so he did that. So because he has done that and he's our representative, it's as though we have done it, that we have perfectly capitulated to God. So this understanding of the vicarious substitutionary atonement, that's what we mean. We're vicariously living through Christ. So what Christ has done, it's as though we've done it. All right. So God makes a covenant, okay, with us. He keeps that. He makes those promises. Every time he makes those promises, he keeps them, that he's going to make things right, that he's going to uh, redo, you know, what needs to be done through Christ. Um, You know, he makes a new covenant with us. Um, He is raised for our justification. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as a, a down payment and as a promise, um, the understanding of the ransom view that, um, uh, that the atonement is, is made, it's satisfying, uh, God's righteousness, that there was a penalty that had to be paid of the, uh, propitiation it's called that the, the penalty, the righteous anger, the wrath of God has been appeased by God by Christ, by uh, what has happened. So what you have is you have a, a sinful people, okay? And their sin is imputed to Christ, okay? Uh, maybe I should go over the word imputation and, and what exactly that means. Now, the way that imputation is understood, uh, is defined, I should say, is that I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read the, dex- the dictionary definition here. Um, so it represents something, especially something undesirable, as being done, uh, caused or possessed by someone, a tribute. In theology, it ascribes righteousness or guilt to someone by virtue of a similar quality in another. Now, the origin of it, it comes from the uh, Middle English, uh, imputer, uh, which means uh, from the Latin, uh, which, uh, well, that was old French, but from the Latin, um, imputare, which means enter in the account. So it is though something has been credited to you. It's been put in your account, okay, this, this imputation. Now, from Christ's perspective, the imputation of man's sin, what that means is the sin of mankind has been put on Christ, been put in his account. Okay, because he was a righteous man, holy God, and that his sacrifice was necessary, was worthy, um, that that sacrifice was then offered. 
Now, I want you to conjure up the image when we talked about uh, with with part one of the uh, sacrificial view of the atonement and uh, and and you know, what that meant. Remember when we were talking about the sacraments and we were talking about um, the the reason why it had to be the body and blood of Christ, the reason why um, you had to eat the lamb in the Passover, uh, what the role of the priest was, all that stuff, because the sins were being passed um, from the father uh, to the animal and then going into the priest's body because he ate it and then, you know, taken up the chain and all that. And ultimately, you know, uh, God eats it through the, through the fire in that imagery sense. Um, because that is showing a type of imputation of sin. Here we have the sins of the whole world being imputed in that way into Christ. It's as though Christ has absorbed or taken in all of that, Okay. All of that has been imputed to him. It is now inside of him and it is a part of him. And all of it is there. So therefore, it all needs to be punished. Every last bit of it. Um, God is... Well, he's perfect. And because of that, all sin has to be punished. Not some, not just a little, but the perfect amount. Not too much, not too little. Because he is perfect. It's not a guessing game with him. He sees what needs to be done. He knows what needs to be done. And so he can make a perfect sacrifice. It's, um, I don't know what I said there, if you heard that beeping, but for some reason... um, Siri, I should whisper that Siri thought I was saying something and she came on. Um, I shouldn't have my phone so close to me when I do these. Um, but that's what we mean whenever we talk about imputation. So Christ now has all these sins. He is sacrificed. Sin has been punished. Sin singular and sins plural also. The sins of the world put on him and the sacrifice has been made. That sacrifice is then offered to God who accepts it. And because that is accepted, forgiveness can be offered. And the righteousness that was Christ's is then imputed to the believers. It is though, it's as though, Everything that Christ did is now in your account. It's not that you are forgiven of your sins and everything is now perfect. It's as though you did everything perfectly in your life. That's what righteous means. Uh, To be justified, righteous. Uh, you're made righteous. It's as though, I mean, it's bad English, but it's as though you did everything 100% perfect. Christ is, uh, his righteousness is imputed to you. That's what it means. And we know from the book of Revelation that he looks as a lamb as though it's been slain, still in that process. Therefore, it can still be offered. It's constantly being offered. So, 
this is how the doctrine of justification gets started and how it is understood. We'll talk more about that next. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. All right, so we have a punishment for our sins, and... I could say punishment for my sins individually, punishment for our sins collectively, and it's, it's this exact payment. Now, in, in this process of Christ's sacrifice, we have the propitiation, which is um, the act where God's righteous wrath is satisfied, okay, because sin has been punished. The imputation, which is the transferal of sin of our sins to Christ. And remember that we also, there is an imputation of Adam's sin to us, physical and spiritual, but we have that imputation. And then that imputation of our sin was then given to Christ. And then we have the redemption aspect of it. And redemption literally means to be purchased. So the scriptural teaching that God paid a price for man's salvation, redeeming us from sin. Now, we understood from the recapitulation view um, that Christ did everything perfect and that that was given to us. The ransom of the Satan view is that a penalty had to be paid. But we understand it's not to Satan, but still there was a ransom that had to be paid. So now... This ransom has been paid, but we have been redeemed. We have been purchased. And if you've ever, I mean, you know, shopped at a store or anything like that, and you've got a a coupon, you know, or you won something and it said, oh, go to this store and, you know, redeem this item with this coupon. So, you you know, you go in and you get, I don't know, like whatever, a, a pencil or a pen or some type of trinket or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. You know, but we understand the concept of redeeming, of, uh, you know, of redemption. Sometimes when we talk theologically and we are speaking uh, about godly subjects, uh, common words that we use seem to slip our mind. They get this holier than thou uh, type of feeling to them. So when we say redemption, it's like, oh, this is just a Christian understanding. No, we use the word redeem in, in our vernacular. Uh, it's it's not like it's something, a foreign concept. It's not something that we have to study for years in order to, to grasp. We're using a lot of the same words that are being used. We're just understanding them a little bit more fully and, and what it means. It's just, you know, it, it's like when you give somebody a Bible to read um, and they, and you tell them it's the word of God, all of a sudden it becomes like, you know, I don't want to say this like you know, pejoratively as you know, different than any other book because it, it is, it's the word of God, but that doesn't mean that there's some highly sophisticated, special, you know, uh, language that you have to learn in order to be able to properly understand. No, I mean, 
you read it and like, you know, I mean, I have my Bible open to the book of James right here. And if, you know, I read the, the first verse from James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. Greetings. I mean, what about that? Are people like, oh, I can't grab my head on what does he mean? Greetings. What does that mean? Is there some? No, come on. He's just saying, hey, guys, it's me, James. Like, what's up? Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, that's, that's the way that they wrote. Like, they, you know, would put who it was from first so you didn't have to get to the end of the letter to see who it was from. You just write it at the beginning. We understand all those those words. We know what that that stuff means. I mean, I could take each word out of there, put it in a different context, and and read it, and you'd be like, oh, okay, well, that's, that's just what they're saying. It's just, it's just a greeting. It's a salutation. It's a, hey, what's going on? It's not, you know, something totally different. So... You know, when I say these words, these are words that, you know, you can understand. Okay, so in, like, in the Ransom to Satan view, okay, you had, you know, the, the, the offended party was Satan, and we know that's not true, that it's, it's God. We understand that now, um, and that the price has been paid, and that we are, the, the benefit is that we are released from what is due, okay, because it's been, it's been paid for us. So... Here's an illustration called The Offer, okay? And this is like a courtroom case that's, that's happening, okay? So the problem is that, you know, the judge is looking at the problem. You have, you have someone guilty sitting in front of the judge, and, and they say, okay, the Bible says that all people are guilty of offending a righteous God. And we know that from Romans uh, 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've gone over that. So sin means that we have offended God in thought and action, okay? It's as if you have lied, cheated, stole, been selfish, had lustful thoughts, whatever it is. You stand guilty before God. In Scripture, it says if you've broken, you know, one part of the law, it's as though you've broken, you're guilty of breaking the entire law. So just think of the Ten Commandments if you've ever broken them. Have you ever put something before God or in place of God? Well, you've broken that commandment, you've broken them all. That's, that's the first one. Have you ever, um, you know, uh, said that God is something that he is not a false God, a, a false idol and said, Hey, no, that is the real God. That is the true God. Even in your ignorance, it doesn't matter just because you were ignorant of something doesn't mean that you weren't. I mean, you know, just because you might come from a country where, you know, beating up women and treating them horribly is totally acceptable in your country, but now you're in a different country and you can't say, oh, you know what? I was totally ignorant of that law. Sorry about that. And think that you're free to go and do whatever. No, 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 no. No, there's a penalty. There, There's laws in place for that. You're guilty of that. Okay. So here's the problem. The Bible says that God is perfectly and eternally righteous. Okay. Uh, we see that from uh, the book of Psalms, uh, chapter 97, verse 2. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, and your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness in Psalm 119, verse 142. So like a judge in the court, uh, he must punish the offender, okay? Uh, in Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, however you pronounce it, pronounce it the right way. That's what I'd encourage. Uh, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. 
Okay, this is a big reason why um, the doctrine of purgatory exists when it comes to the satisfaction view of the atonement, because nothing unrighteous or wicked can stand before God. So, you know, if you're a sinful being up until the point where you die, and then all of a sudden you stand in front of God, you're still a sinful being. You have to be made right. You have to be purged of those sins. Where we get the word, you know, that's where purgatory comes from. It's that understanding. So that's why purgatory is necessary so that you can stand before a righteous God. And we also know from the book of Romans that the wages of sin is death. So if everybody's sinful, everybody has to be punished. This just has to happen. So why can't God just forgive sin out of love? Why can't God just say, look, I just forgive everyone. Okay, we're going to start clean. We're going to straighten everything out. Okay, everybody, look, just forgiven. Well, here's the reason. Okay, here, think of this situation. Okay, you're watching the proceedings in this courtroom, okay, where a man is accused of robbery. The evidence is clearly convicting. There are witnesses who say they saw the defendant commit the crime. There are videotapes of the crime which show the defendant in the act of robbery. Finally, the defendant himself confesses. And the judge says to the defendant, even though you did this, I'm going to set you free with no penalty. I forgive you. Would the judge be considered righteous? No, of course not. People would freak out. You can't do that. That's not, I mean... In the county I live in, because people, the judges tend to be lenient on uh, criminals sometimes, they get this reputation of, oh, they're not hard on crime, they're not trying to reform, they're not trying to redeem, all they're doing is just letting people off the hook, okay? He would say that's not a, a, a just judge, that is not a righteous judgment, that is not a good judgment. Um, you know, well, what if, okay... What if the defendant said he was sorry? What if he promised that he would never do it again? And it was like, oh, man, I would, I'll never, look, okay, I understood that I robbed people, okay? I understood that, you know, I assaulted people, I raped women, but, Your Honor, you don't understand. On my way over here, I didn't rob one person. I didn't assault one person. I am I'm, I'm really sorry. I will not do it again. Totally sorry for all that stuff. What, what if the judge said, oh, well, in that case, not a problem. You're good. Go ahead. No, no, of course. No, that would not fly. No, he must be punished for the crime. The person must be punished for their crime. Okay. You cannot just let them go free. I mean, you might think, well, it's nice of the judge to do that, but it's totally unjust. Okay. There is no justice there. So we're like the defendant, okay? We've committed sin before God, and while we might be sorry and repentant, God cannot deny his righteousness any more than he can cease to be God. God must punish our crime, and as a judge sentences criminals to jail, God must sentence sinners to hell. Colossians 3.25 says, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done. And that without partiality. Okay. He's getting the full uh, penalty for that. So here's God's dilemma. The Bible says that God is righteous and must punish sinners. Okay. But the Bible also says that God loves all people and he's not wanting to send anyone to hell. 
So our dilemma is that all sins must be punished and good works cannot save us. So there's nothing that we can do. Again, we learned about that from our discussion of, of free will. If you believe we have free will or if you don't, uh, that whole understanding of original sin, the Pelagianism, the semi-Pelagianism or semi-Augustinianism, um, that whole thing of, well, God comes in and balances the scale so that we can do these good works, okay? Um, Romans 3.20 says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. The law of God is what matters. And so Paul is saying in, in later on verses that, I mean, later on writings that he does, that the the law was our tutor, but nobody can be saved by the law. Nobody can be saved through the law. The solution that God came up with here is that God offers his son to be our substitute. Mark 10 45 says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And remember, Mark was the first gospel that was written. Um, Matthew and Luke used his as like an outline, like a, a, you know, a formula to kind of follow in that sense. And John was uh, more independent of them. Um, but Christ took the penalty on himself. Uh, if you read Isaiah 53, verse 6, it says, All of us are like sheep who have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. Okay. Isaiah was written about 700 years before uh, the Gospel of Mark. So the cross was the only way for God to remain righteous and yet forgive our sins. It's a perfect demonstration of God's love and justice. I'm going to read uh, out of Romans here, um, chapter 3, verse uh, 21 through uh, 25. So let me flip there. You know, I, should, I really should have these out you know, before I start doing this stuff, should have my pages marked, but I don't. So you get to listen here and listen to me go flip, flip, flip. Okay, but now apart from the law of righteousness of God, which is attested by the law and the pe- and the prophets, has been disclosed, namely the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because God in his forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed. See, Rome, the book of Romans, Paul is pulling out that Passover understanding that we, we went over with eating the lamb and, you know, what was happening uh, with that. Verse 26, we're going to say, this was also to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus's faithfulness. So it's all about God. It's all about what Christ did. If, if one more verse. It says, where then is the boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? Of works? No, but by the principle of faith. 
For we consider that a person is declared righteous by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. Instead, we uphold the law. Christ has done it for us. This is what this imputation means. This is what it means that we are positionally righteous because of what Christ did, because he was positionally or is positionally righteous and it's been given to us. Just because Jesus died on our behalf does not mean that this automatically applies to us. We must trust in Christ for salvation, thereby receiving God's offer. And we get that from John uh, chapter 1, verse 12. Yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And this starts to move into the sanctification aspect of it. Okay, so remember when we talked about the fides qua creditor and the fides quae creditor? This fides qua creditor, the faith by which we believe, okay, this is what is given to us, okay? So just because Jesus died for the sins of the world doesn't mean the entire world is off the hook. Christ's death was sufficient, for the entire world, but it is efficient for only those who believe. And only those who believe are the ones who can believe because of God putting that faith in them. But it's not the putting of the faith in them that makes them righteous. They are declared righteous it's like all this stuff is happening at one time. Think about the, the birth illustration. A child exists, but does not cry out for its father until it's been born. But it is still that father's child. But once it is born and it cries out for its father, that connection is made, that, that relationship is there and it only strengthens from there and it strengthens on the part of the child. My love for my children hasn't stopped or lessened, uh, since they were born. I loved them before they were born when I just wanted, when they were born, I wanted to do everything I could for them to keep them safe and warm and, and happy. And I'm, I'm, and I'm doing the same today, years later, the Bible tells us that there are only two options that you can bear your own punishment or you can allow Christ to bear it for you. That's, that's it. That's what we're looking at. So the offer is this. How do you do this? Trust in Christ to take your penalty. He died on the cross, rose from the grave for the purpose of taking your punishment. John, the famous John 3.16, that's what we're coming to here. That for this is the way that God loved the world. He gave his, his one and only son 
that everyone who believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not condemned. The one who does not believe has been condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. A lot of times when people quote John 3.16, they leave out verses 17 and 18. And a unit of thought is called a pericope. Um, Whenever you break up a pericope, things can be taken out of context. Um, A lot of people will say, well, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Um, but they leave out this part because a lot of people, a lot of Christians will use the cross of Christ to beat up on non-Christians and say, if you don't believe in Jesus, you know, they use it in this way. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're just going to hell. And that's just what it is. You're just going to hell. And while the conceptually, you know, that's true. That's not the point. Jesus didn't come so that you could use that to beat somebody up or use it as like a scare tactic or, or anything in that way. He came to serve and he came to say, look, I've, I've, I've done this for you. This is free to accept. If you accept this, you've been saved. You're already saved. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you have been saved. People ask me, well, I've, I, I prayed, I gave my life to Christ. Now, what can I do? What can I do? I'm like, no, you don't understand. The fact that you did that is proof that you are saved. The, pra- the, the fact that you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose for your justification shows that you're justified. You're positionally righteous with God. The fact that you want to do something, you know, is, is solidifying it. It's, it's strengthening it within yourself. The strength of the view of the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement is that it takes God's righteousness seriously. It takes our sin seriously. It shows the severity and necessity of the atonement, and it shows that there was no other way. Even in uh, the Gospels, um, if you look at Matthew uh, 26, verse 39, about Christ, it says, and he went a, a little beyond them, And fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is praying, is there any other way than this? Because Jesus is a human being. He's not this this hybrid, this half human, half God. He's fully human and fully God. But he's fully representing us. He is not accessing his deity. He is um, denying himself, is denying his, his deity, seeing himself as a servant, as less, only relying on what he receives from the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's only doing miracles and doing things and knowing things by the power of the Holy Spirit, only by what the Holy Spirit gives him. And he is asking... If it's possible, let this cup 
and this this cup of reconciliation that we talked about um, from the four cups of the Passover, uh, and, and you know what that what that meant that the the Passover feast the the liturgy a couple of pits ago the the importance of that um, and and why it's so important for us to understand the the um, satisfaction view of the atonement the sacramental system of the Roman Catholic Church their understanding the strong understanding of the Old Testament. Um, liturgical worship, the Passover celebration, what the Passover lamb means, that whole, the whole sinfulness. Um, you could see the richness that is in this view. But a lot of times Christians take this view and say, well, you know, Christ just died for my sins, but they don't qualify that preposition for, which is what we're doing here. And in saying that, no, all this understanding we have of the past, of the way Christ's atonement is applied to us, it's all come into play here. It's all in place when it comes to the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement. Okay? The scriptural support in the Old Testament is the institution of the Passover. That points to a vicarious substitution. It doesn't point to a, a recapitulation view alone or a ransom view alone. The sacrificial system, the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur, pointed to the perfect sacrifice of Christ that would, that would give on behalf of our sins. Um, Christ is later called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, even if you've been in some high liturgies, you would that, that part would be sung during the liturgical worship. O Lamb of God, you taketh away the sins of the world. Have mercy upon us. Isaiah 53 vividly describes a vicarious substitution. In the New Testament, you have this understanding and in, in Mark 10 45 for even the son of man did not come to serve, but uh, to, uh, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many Galatians three thirteen, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us for it is written cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. We read over um, Romans three twenty one through 26, second Corinthians five twenty one. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become righteousness, the, become the righteousness of him in God. Ephesians 5, 2. And live in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Think about, we talked about the, the, the burning of the animal and it you know, raising up that the sins were put into it what we mean by the, the fragrance there. But you have more uh, in the um, book of Hebrews uh, 7, 26 through 27, uh, Hebrews 29, um, verse 28. And think about it from the, the priest and the sacrifice aspect of it, okay? 
7, uh, 26 and 27 says, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Chapter 9, verse 28 in Hebrews. So also, after Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly await him, he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation. What's going on here is that because Jesus is our high priest, and he is our sacrifice, and he is bodily resurrected, ascending in heaven, It's as though there is a perpetual, ongoing sacrifice made on our behalf by a high king and a priest who is holy and worthy, who is able to sacrifice himself. Not the blood of goats and lamb and sheep, but the blood of the Son of God himself. He is freely offering. It's as though he held himself in his own hands and sacrificed himself on our behalf, taking on all of our sins. By living as man, he was able to represent us as the father represented the family, placing his hand on the animal and confessing the sins of the family. Christ bearing our sin, the sin of Adam, our sins personally. He is then able to represent us. And being fully God, he is able to fully represent God and accept the sacrifice and to offer it up. He sits on the right hand of the throne of God, which means he has all authority and power. It's been given to him. He is the one who judges now the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. It's a little old-timey way of saying it. So, this is all happening Godward. When it comes to who holds to this, um, you have Luther, Calvin, and the Reformed uh, understanding of Christianity that Christ died to pay the exact penalty of sins of individuals to God. Now, was his death the only way? Yes. And the result is that salvation is secure in this. Because in this illustration that I gave, where is your part in it? Well, it's not. You're passive in this. Your acceptance, even your acceptance is based on what God's done for you. So when you talk about eternal security, you talk about that which saves you is that which sustains you. If it's all God, then God is the one who sustains you. So all the the views we've gone through so far, even the moral example view that Christ lived and died to give us an example to follow has truth to it. Um, that, you know, the atonement itself is a vicarious penal substitution, and that's what was necessary to redeem mankind. 
Now, after this view, and what we're going to lead up to and talk about is going to be the governmental view of the atonement, which, which comes after this understanding. And we might even get into what I've called a semi-substitutionary view or semi-governmental view that stands in between this governmental view, which I think that a lot of people hover. Because when, we, when I talk about justification and the fides qua creditor and the fides quae creditor and that it's all God, it's not us, and understanding what justification means and how it applies. And why I've been jumping up and down, especially in the pits of conception, I mean, I jump up and down about how people don't understand it. The, when you don't understand it in the way that you talk about other believers, uh, this then leads to that understanding of a, a semi-substitutionary view or what's been called progressive justification. And I would say that progressive justification and progressive sanctification, sanctification is a process, everyone holds to that, but when you mix the two, that's when you get this progressive justification. And some people have dubbed it the new Calvinism and have called it that. And I think that there is a validity to that argument. I might talk about that a little bit more next time of this progressive justification. But here, this is solid. This is just justification by faith alone and what the implications of that are. I think that you give a lot of people give lip service to that. I think Luther did. But when you read his writings, same thing with Westminster Confession, as we went over in the pits of conception and in um, the last uh, theology pit, that by not fully understanding it, you slip back into a progressive justification. You really don't hold to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But does that matter? And I think as we've seen from this pit, it doesn't matter. It's all God and it's not us. So within Calvinism, there is this understanding of limited atonement because of election, because of that exact penalty that Christ paid. And I'm hearing the music. So that's pretty much in a nutshell, you know, the uh, doctrine of justification by faith alone, the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement. I hope you're enjoying these theology pits. Please visit me, samsonstick.com. Email me, samson at samsonstick.com, or visit us on uh, Facebook at the Theology Pit. And now I think it's definitely time to close down the pit. Thank you. Thank you.